you know, Hebrew between now and five minutes from now. Um, but I want us to have the humility as we approach these texts of understanding that, um, that the language that we're reading it is not the language in which they live. Okay? That, and, um, but what you are reading is a Jewish translation. You are not reading a Christian translation. Okay, you are reading, there, there are numerous Jewish translations out there of Hebrew scripture. This one is um, from the Jewish Publication Society. It is a good translation. It is not always the best translation, but it's a good translation. I think it strikes the, a very good balance of readability and accuracy. Um, we're not going to go off on a rabbit hole today about what are the other translations that should be on your bookshelf if you want to be a student of scripture. Um, but this is, a, this is a good one. And w the other thing that defines it as a Jewish translation is two things. One is it's a translation directly from the Hebrew. Okay, the King James is a tertiary translation. The Septuagint um, was the translation of Hebrew scripture into Greek. The Vulgate is the translation from the Greek into the Latin. And the King James is the translation of the Vulgate into English. Now, the King James Bible is a beautiful magisterial work of art, but it is a tri-level translation. Um, now, there are newer Christian Bibles that have been published since that have, um, that have been translated directly from the Hebrew, um, but I would even claim that a Christian translation of Hebrew scripture necessarily is coming with a Christological bias. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a Christian Bible. But the reader should be aware of that. And, um, and when we jump into terms like Judeo-Christian values, which, by the way, is a term I hate. <laughs> um, hate might be a strong term. Um, but it is a term I don't like. Um, because I don't think it gives honor either to the Christian tradition nor to the Jewish tradition. Um, and, but it, there is a recognition that, you know, the, that Christianity has its own reasons that are completely legitimate and authentic within the theological framework of Christianity for understanding Scripture in a particular way. And that's a different way than the way that the Jewish people have historically understood Hebrew scripture. It is not understood the same way. Um, so before we begin, um, I'm gonna just introduce myself again, and then what we're gonna do, since we're not, we're a good-sized group today, but we're not so big that we can't learn everybody's names pretty quickly. But what we're not gonna have a chance to do, since we are too big, is we won't get to hear everybody's stories tonight. If we heard everybody's stories tonight, then you know it would be like my Passover Seder, and we wouldn't get out until two in the morning. Okay, <laughs> and um, we're not going to do that today. So um, I'm David Glickman, as Tim had said, and I'm from Lansing, Michigan, originally. I'll, I'm going to be indulgent, and I'm going to tell you my story, um, just so that you know a little bit about the person coming to you. Um, I came from a small town in Michigan, came from Lansing, Michigan, not a super small town, but small-ish, in a pr quite a small Jewish community. We had two synagogues, or more, 
members of my synagogue here in Kansas City than there were total than there are total Jews in all of Lansing. Um, I, I grew up in a in a family that was religiously involved, but not particularly ritually observant. And uh, I was that kid who was, I was involved in synagogue. I, was, I assume they have church kids here, kids who like come and do stuff and you know, do the youth groupy stuff and you know, listen to your pastor and stuff. We didn't have a rabbi, by the way, which is, I'm not telling, I want him to keep his job for a very long time. But I want to say that growing up in a house of worship without a pastor is a wonderful way to have no bad role models in that position. Okay. No, I'm serious. Um, we, we were a completely lay-led congregation. We were completely volunteer-led during my years of growing up. And so I grew up, my role models were educated lay adults who took it upon their took it upon themselves to make it their business to know enough to run a synagogue, and to have worship services every week, to have scripture read every week, to have Sunday school every Sunday, and Hebrew school every Wednesday, and every holiday taken care of, and everything was taken care of. We sometimes paid a school administrator, we sometimes paid an office staff, but during the years that I was growing up, a million years ago, um, we didn't have, they have a, a rabbi now, but they, we did not have a rabbi when I was growing up. And so I had these great role models, but I did not think I was gonna be a rabbi. I didn't have any role models for it. I uh, went to University of Michigan to go into their BFA theater program. I was gonna, and I, I thought that, that was gonna be my path. And I had a professor who, he didn't say this just to me, by the way. He said it to all, the entire class. I was just the only one who listened. And he said, if there's anything else you can do with your life, go do it. For those of you who have high school, college, or young adult children who are going into the arts, you know of which I speak. Okay, um, so I listened and I was getting involved in the Jewish community on campus. I was getting very involved in pro-Israel politics and uh, that led me to study in Israel my junior year of college, which, um, where I met my wife-to-be, Annie, we're still married. 26 years later, and um, I also really fell in love in Israel, not only with Israel and with the state of Israel, with the land of Israel, the people, but I also fell in love with Jewish study, with serious textual Jewish study, the kind of which I wasn't ever able to get in, uh, in college or in high school. And from there, that led me to have an epiphany, um, which was that I can be studying this stuff for my entire life and I will never get bored. And when young people talk to you about what should they do with their life, one suggestion I have as an answer is if you can find the thing that will allow you to do it and never get bored, choose that. And if it can pay the bills, even better. <laughs> um, from there I went, as, as Tim said, I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is the seminary for the denomination called Conservative Judaism, of which I'm a member, which is a centrist movement. It's, I, I think that the best corollary is probably Episcopalians. Okay, so kind of like, if you like, you know, a service with a rigid liturgy, and yet you still like, want, you know, female clergy and your clergy, you know, those kinds of things, you know, you go become an Episcopalian. And uh, 
Similarly, if you want a kosher kitchen, and if you want worship in Hebrew, and you want an attention to ritual, and you want uh, you know, gender equality and other aspects of modernity, I'm, I'm the right denomination for you, okay? Um, and we also like the centrist denominations of Christianity right now. We are getting squeezed by both the right and the left. Is that happening in Christianity right now? Yes, may, that's what I've been reading anyway, that all the mainstream, pro Church of the Resurrection seems to be doing okay, but other mainstream um, uh, denominations seem to be getting squeezed by the you know, very progressives on the left and the evangelicals on the right, and same thing's happening with the Jews. So let's start here, and if you can, we'll do, actually what we're gonna do is we'll do first row, and then we'll do second row, and just tell me your name, so if I call on you to read, I can at least have half a chance of getting the right name. Kelly, just do first names if you could, because I'm, I'm not gonna get the last name. <laughs> Tom. Tom, okay. Julie, Julie. okay. Steve. Steve. Tara. Tara. Christopher. Okay, move on to the second row, yeah. Jennifer. Jim. Caitlin. Grant, great. And moving one row back, Kent, Susie, okay. Beth, Jody, Kylie, Tom, Nancy, and are you, sorry, Christina. Mandy, okay. Bill. Harold. Harold. Just a second. Brian. Mm -hmm. Did we get everybody in that row? Mm -hmm. Okay, moving back a row. I'm sorry? Josh? Okay, anyone else in that row? I don't think so. In back row? Hmm? Hmm? Okay, did we get everybody? And Tim, I know. And who's way in the back there? Cole. Cole. Okay. So let me give you a very brief intro. My intro I'm calling Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not going to put on my Indiana Jones hat. And I'm not going to sing the theme for you, but it's already stuck in some of your heads if you are of the right generation. Um, so the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, is um, one of two books that take place uh, along with Bamidbar. I guess you could say Deuteronomy too, but Deuteronomy is its own uh, kettle of fish um, that takes place um, completely in the wilderness. Doesn't take place in Egypt. Doesn't take place in. Uh, it doesn't take place in the land of Israel. Takes place completely in the uh, Sinai wilderness, 
So uh, Leviticus and uh, uh, Vayikra and Bamidbar, Leviticus and the Book of Numbers both take place there. And it is primarily centered around the worship by the Levitical priests, okay, which is the name Leviticus. And the priestly class are all descendants, as you know. I'm probably not telling you anything you haven't already learned in your, your class with Pastor Tim. The, the priests were all descendants of, um, of Aaron. So the Aaron is Aaron is Moses' brother. Okay, Moses and Aaron are both from the tribe of Levi. And the and Aaron becomes the uh, Aaron becomes the forefather of the priestly class, the Kohanim, the Kohanes. Okay? And they were the only the it, it is a family business. Okay, it is a, um, it, they are a, a sub-sub-tribe of the tribe of Levi, and there are other jobs in the temple, excuse me, in the tabernacle that are delegated to other sub-tribes, but the most important sub-tribe is the sub-tribe of Aaron's descendants. Um, there are three primary characters in later biblical literature that map out the power structure of the Israelite community, and that is the, uh, the Navi, which means the, the prophet. And the paradigm for the prophet in Hebrew scripture is Moses, Moshe, okay? And the model of what a Navi is, a prophet is when God speaks to this human, and the human delivers the message to an audience on behalf of God. Okay, that is the, when we talk about prophecy, we're like, oh, that's a, guy, that's a guy who can predict the future. In the Hebrew Bible, a prophet, a navi, is someone who has a very unique role and a very unique, and a specific relationship. That relationship is God speaks to him, and he speaks to the people to deliver a message. Other um, role, that we see a lot in this power structure is the is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Okay, Aaron becomes the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and he is in charge of all of this of the entire sanctum of the sanctified area of worship for God. And it is limited to him and his family, um, and he's in charge of that whole power structure. And it is, you know. One could say that it is by being chosen from God, but it's not really. It's because, it's because you know, you're part of the lucky sperm club, right? You know, your great, 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 great grandfather was chosen by God. The other Nevi'im, the Nevi'im are not. They are each individually chosen by God. Um, perhaps because of something about them, um, but not necessarily so. And then once we get to the book of Samuel, there is a third in the power structure, and that is the melech, the king. So it's this three-part power structure. Political power, um, religious institutional power, and prophetic power of the power of the voice of God. All three of them, and they play off each other throughout um, all of the books of the Nevi'im, the books of the prophets. Um, God instructs the Israelite people during the book of Exodus, during the book of Shemot, that God, it's not enough that God is just going to reveal God's will 
through law, the revelation at Mount Sinai, but also that God wants to be in an intimate relationship with the community of the people of Israel. That, and this is the instructions that you get um, multiple times to build a tabernacle. And this takes us through the whole second half of the book of Exodus, is building this giant structure. Now, I'm not going to go off, I'm going to try not to go off on too long of a tangent here, but the laws of the Sabbath are intimately tied to the tabernacle. And the laws of the Sabbath are intimately tied to the first six days of creation. The Hebrew word that describes the, the construction of the universe and that describes the construction of the tabernacle is the same Hebrew word. That word for work is used for both of those times and it's not used very many other places. So when a Hebrew word is only used in a couple of places, you extract meaning from it. And for, and, and you know, when people are wanting to read, I personally believe, my personal belief system is that the reason why the Hebrew scripture begins with Bereshit, with in the beginning, is not to teach how God created the universe. It is to teach that God created the universe. And when people challenge me on this, I'm saying, okay, if that is not the case, then why does the scripture spend just like two chapters on the construction of the whole universe? And then the scripture spends dozens of chapters on basically a glorified circus tent which is the tabernacle. If you read through this, if you love to go to Joanne Fabrics, if you love to wander the aisles of Home Depot and Lowe's, then you will love like the last you know, 20 chapters of the book of Exodus, 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, because that's what it's all about. And then the book of Leviticus is how do you use it? But why do we have it? God makes that very clear in the book of Exodus. God says, Asuli mikdash, make for me a tabernacle, vishachanti betocham, so that I may dwell within them, within the people. God wants to have a relationship with the community of Israel, with the Israelites. And that's why the tabernacle exists. And that's why the entire sacrificial system exists, and that's why all the priests exist. And God wants to make what the rabbinic tradition says is a dwelling place in the lower regions. God, does, God is not limited by space in the Jewish tradition. God is not limited by time. God does not have a body. God does not have a physical form. But God also knows that human brains are limited. And God wants to dwell within the people, so he gives us a giant building project so that we can have a specific structure and methodology for connecting with God through a series of rituals and taking care of this structure and taking care of all of the buildings. 
um, that's when you take care of something, it shows your love and devotion and a whole methodology through sacrifice to be able to worship God. This, this tabernacle was able to be folded up and carried. It all had poles. There's a whole system for carrying it around. Hence Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark was one of the things. They carried it into Jerusalem. That's the book of Joshua. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says you're going to go to the place that I will designate for you. We understand that to be Jerusalem. Um, David becomes the king in Jerusalem. And it is there where um, David, God's beloved, um, obviously, you know, really fast-forwarding over a lot, um, says, why should I dwell in a building when you dwell in a tent? Because of, um, you know, um, David's limitations, he's not able to build the temple. King Solomon is able to build the temple. That sacrificial system that was in the tent but wandered around is now in a fixed location on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that, that same structure and organizational structure that you're learning about in Leviticus took place then in Jerusalem. And that becomes the way that the kingdom, the, the kingdom of all of the Israelites continued basically uninterrupted until 586 BCE when the first temple is destroyed and the Israelites are exiled to Babylonia. That's called the Babylonian exile. Um, ten tribes are lost to exile. Um, the tribes um, and the southern tribes and the Levites are not. They come back from Exodus, they come back from Babylonia in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, or Nehemiah. Um, is that pronounced correctly, Nehemiah? We have this conference for um, Good Faith Network called the Nehemiah Conference. And when I bring it to my synagogue, they're all like, who's Nehemiah? Isn't that, isn't that part of the Christian? Isn't that a Christian guy? I'm like, no, Nehemiah. Oh, Nehemiah. Why, why didn't you say that in the first place, Rabbi Glickman? <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, and then in the year 70, right at about the time that Christianity is starting to develop, um, the temple is destroyed by the Romans. The Jews are exiled first from Jerusalem. They're not able to look at Jerusalem. It's called Aelia Capitolina. We're not even allowed to be within eyesight of Jerusalem because of the Romans. Um, and at about that same time, there was already the beginnings of rabbinic Judaism. But at about that time, that's when rabbinic Judaism, which is what I practice, what every Jew today practices, um, takes off. And the rabbis, the beginning of the rabbinic class, is stuck with the conundrum of how do we take all the values and how do we take all of all, all, how do we take all the all the things that we used to do with stuff, this physicality that was first not limited by a geographic space, right? When we were in the wilderness, it wasn't limited by geographic space, but it was limited by um, proximity to the people. We were all marching through the deserts as 600,000 plus adult males, which means we were like 1.4, 1.7 million people marching through the desert, which is 
like sort of an amazing sight to imagine in your mind. Like, can you imagine like if they had drones, you know, in 2000 BCE, you know, and the drones were flying above and getting a, you know, it's like, you know, the way that I conceptualize that is it's like 12 Michigan stadiums at the Michigan-Ohio State game, you know, and I saw people coming. I was in Michigan, you know, I was in the, there's a lot of people there. You know, 12 of those marching through a desert. And so the, the location wasn't a set physical location, but it was a physical location as defined by being near the people of Israel. Once we inherited the land and conquered the land of the book of Joshua, and then the ark um, in, the book of, um, in the book of Samuel gets placed in Jerusalem, now the locus of worship is rooted in Jerusalem, and it's not rooted by being geographical, in geographical proximity to all the Israelites, because we were all going to our ancestral um, inheritances that we learned about back in the earlier books. And so after the destruction, these early rabbis were saying, okay, we don't have physical proximity. The people aren't all physically together. We don't have a geographically fixed spot. We don't have a physical location. We don't have an ark. We don't have an altar. We don't have showbread. We don't have any of that stuff. We don't have lavers. We don't have fire pans. We don't have incense. We don't have any of it. How do we survive? How do we remember who we are? And how do we get back to the essence of what that stuff was for? And that's what rabbinic Judaism is. And that is the story of how the Jewish people like, have you ever like, thought about that? Like, if anybody has been a student of history, is like, wait a second. The Babylonians came and destroyed the first temple. Okay. They come back, they rebuild the temple. The Romans go and destroy the temple. The, um, you know, there's all these people who, like, you, you know, all of European history is one nation that tries to destroy the Jews after another. Um, like, it is, it is literally, and, and, and I don't like to, I'm not one of these people who lives for anti-Semitism, okay? Like, there's some people who, like, that's their self-definition. It's not my self-definition. But it is important to recognize, like, just this week. Did you guys talk about this in your church, about what was found in the well? There was a well in England and they found through DNA evidence that from the 1100s, from the Crusades, there are a dozen bodies of kids and families that were murdered and flung down a well, and they've concluded through genetic research that these were Jewish families who were killed during the Crusades. And they actually found the bodies. Because it's not respectful to disrupt Jewish graves, this is actually the first genetic evidence of these massacres. Norwich, it's in Norwich, England. But this is, this is time and time again. And you're like, how? Like, every, anybody else would have disappeared by this time. And it's because, I believe, 
that way back then, at the time of the destruction of the temple, they took all these values from Leviticus that you guys are learning about, and they figured out, we're going to make them portable. And we're going to make them so that they can be done at the very theological and psychological essence at any time and at any place. And the Jews will be able to worship the God of Israel in an authentic way with all of the values of Leviticus, but without a priestly class. I mean, there are Kohanim, but they don't have the same function. Without a temple and without any of the accoutrements that you have been learning about. Let's pause here and we'll take questions. Any questions thus far or any questions that you want to see answered tonight? And Tim, what time do I have until? Ninety minutes total. Okay, so I've I've used up thirty-six minutes of it. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm gonna be respectful. Because I also want to leave time for QA. And um, I also want to see my family. Um, I want to stay married for another 26 years. Um, okay, so any questions? Work, the word for sacred work. And for those who, who didn't come in for my introduction, I'm Rabbi David Blickman. The sacred work, cre sacred creative work, is melacha. That's not, not, not melacha, it's ha like in Bach. Okay, melacha. Okay, um, and that's used uh, throughout the construction of the tabernacle. It's also used in the creation of the world. And when God says specifically, thou shalt do no sacred work, um, in Exodus 21, and also in the two um, revelations of the Ten Commandments, the one in Exodus 20 and the one that's in, in Deuteronomy, both of those, God uses the word melacha. And when God talks about creating the world, it's milacha. And when it says that God rested from all the work that he had done, it's milacha. That's the same word all those times. Great question. Any other? Yes. And hold on just a second. Steve. So when the rabbinical tradition started, you said mm -hmm. No, okay. Do we have our what? Descendants of Aaron. Yes, okay. So, yes, there were still descendants of Aaron. But first of all, don't forget, the priestly class only lived and worked in Jerusalem. It's not like, you know, there was the priest of Olathe, there was the priest of Lenexa, you know, it wasn't like that. They all worked in Jerusalem. They're suddenly out of a job, okay? They were quasi-governmental officials. And also, during that time, as you learn about in the Christian scripture, there were already power struggles going on while the temple still stood. There were power struggles going on between the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In case Sadducees were a priestly um, organization, and the, and the Pharisees was a studying, more of a scholarly tradition. And the rabbis were part of that Pharisaic tradition, or the, or the scribal tradition. And so they, um, you know, there's a lot of battles, it, not real battles, but like pushing and elbowing for power, and it's 
the, the, the rabbis who have, end up having the power for the next 2,000 years because there is no... It, the, the, the law is very clear that all of these rites and rituals can only be done on the Temple Mount. Okay? So... Um, uh, so the types of uh, so there were certain honors that priests had and still have, and depending on the traditionalism of the denomination in modern day Judaism, um, depends on how much those honors are afforded to descendants of of Aaron. So for example, um, there are certain honors for coming up to the to, for for the re the public reading of the Torah scroll on on Saturday on Shabbat morning on the Sabbath morning. And in traditional synagogues, the priest, the Kohen, has always the first honor. And the uh, Levites, okay, in other words, anyone else from the tribe of Levi, gets the second honor. And, um, see, and, the, and there are a few other liturgical roles. Uh, but you can still worship even if you don't have one. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, because we're not doing offerings anymore. Now, and there are blessings of the people and things like this that priests do. And there's also, you can go on, there's all sorts of rabbit holes in Google that you can find of uh, genetic proof that there is actual genetic, there's like a Kohen gene. There's like this one gene that 90% of people who today think they are Kohanim that they have found on the Y chromosome. Okay, so I don't really get into that, but if you do, God should bless you. Okay, any other good questions? Yes. Navi Kohen Melech, um, prophet, priest, king. No. Modern storyteller is not a Kohen necessarily, although there may be Kohanim who tell great stories. But um, the Kohanim now, contemporarily, or today, is simply someone who has that genetic descendancy and they're allowed to do some of those um, ritual um, roles that I just talked about. Yes, and just a second. Scott? Kent, I'm off, on, I'm off a row. Scott is right behind you. Okay, Kent. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, all of the animal sacrifices ended with the destruction of the temple. We're not, what we're not going to get into today is how different Jewish denominations view the idea of a return to sacrifices. Okay? We are not going to go there today, but that is 
That's like a whole semester-long course right there. Um, the, what's known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall was a, um, an actual holding wall of the Temple Mount built by King Herod, by Herod the Great. Guy was a, I mean, this guy was a builder, okay? Huge time builder and architect, and you can go to Israel, and I hope that you do, you should, and uh, you will see a ton of stuff that is still standing built by King Herod, including that wall. And you can go, what's really cool if you go there is you need to go to the southern wall excavations. Okay, and there is a, um, there's a whole archeological center there called the Davidson Center. It's funded by Bill Davidson, um, a former owner of the Pistons. Um, and you can go down there at the southern wall excavations and you will see like you, at the, the Kotel, the, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, where you see all the pictures of people praying, it's like these be, kind of beautiful, magisterial, gigantic, you know, bricks that are enormous and weigh tons and tons. You go down two levels to where the Southern Wall excavations are, you're not only going to see the destruction, you, 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 will see actual, you will see actual destruction. You will see the actual bricks, and there is still char on it from when Jerusalem was burnt in the year 70. And I mean, it's, it is astounding. It is astounding. And you will also see, like, you read all about the priests immersing. Like, you read, like, all these people are always immersing in waters all the time. If you haven't gotten there yet, you will. Okay. You will see, like, if you get a good tour guide, they're going to show you, like, there are these, these immersion pools that have been excavated right by the Temple Mount, and you can see that. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's really cool. Um, so I called this Raiders of the Lost Ark because, um, because I, I think that in some way well, the Jewish people have, have done this amazing job of sort of reconstructing themselves um, without physical stuff. And in some ways, I'm just thinking this out now, it's like, you know, we took a God without physicality and we created like this whole faith tradition without that physicality that God had given us in the, in, in, in the wilderness, which is pretty amazing. And, um, and what we're going to do today is I'm going to take three concepts from the book of Leviticus. We're going to look at the scriptural verses in the book of Leviticus, see how it's played out in, there in the scripture that you guys either have studied, are studying, or will study. And then we're going to look at some rabbinic texts from different centuries and see how did the rabbinic tradition take this value or this concept and um, continue to live it out. Does that make sense? Great. Um, so I talked about the commandment to first build the tabernacle. Um, which is in the book of Exodus, and where God says, I want you to build a tabernacle so that I can dwell amongst them. And then we see its construction in the book of Exodus, and then we see in the beginning of the book of Leviticus the, the whole dedication ceremony of dedicating the priests. And I know that you guys probably like spent a lot of time you know, with that. And then this is from that section, sort of the conclusion of that section. 
And can I have a volunteer to read Leviticus 9, 5 through 7? I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you all to do the reading of the scripture. And depending on the amount of Hebrew words or jargon, for lack of a better term, in the rabbinic text, I may read it or I may call on volunteers. But at any time that anyone has a question, feel free to just shoot your hand up and ask a question. So can I have a volunteer to read Leviticus 9, 5 through 7? Okay, thanks. Uh, Christopher. Pause for just one moment. Um, what's the most tragic story in the first 10, 12 chapters of, 12, 13 chapters of the book of Leviticus? What chapter are you guys on right now? 16, you said? So what's been the most tragic story that you guys have come to? Absolutely, right? I mean, doesn't your heart break? I mean, this is, I think, I think this is one of the most tragic stories in all of Hebrew scripture. And it baffles our rationality. It goes beyond our rationality. But it is tied to the commandedness that, that this, this object, this tabernacle with the altar and with the sacrificial system it's like this crazy, gigantic supercomputer of some sort, you know, or a nuclear, you know, a nuclear weapon protocol, or, you know, operating a fighter jet, or operating, you know, any huge dangerous piece of machinery. You get an instruction manual, and you have to follow it to the letter. And Nadav and Avihu, it says, the thing that it says about them is they offered strange fire that God had not commanded them. And so what do we notice here in what Moses is telling the priests in verse 5? Yeah. Well, I think you already read it. Excuse me, verse 6. You already read it. The Lord has commanded that you do. So that's, I just wanted to focus on that. And now we're going to see why. So verse 7, continue. Then Moses said, Okay, but we, and so he's telling him you're going to do this, but the reason for doing this, as we saw in, in verse 6, is why does God commanding this for them? So God can appear to them. God is saying, I want to appear to you. I want to be in community with you. I want to be close to you, and I want you to draw close to me. As um, I know that because Tim and I had the chance to study together during the summer, um, he had said that you guys were talking a lot about the whole idea of korban, of sacrifice, which means to the thing that draws you close or the thing that draws you near. So the God of Leviticus wants to be close to the Israelite people, and he wants the system of sacrifices to be something that draws you close. Think about it like someone who you love. 
when you give a gift or when you sacrifice for somebody who you love, sometimes the recipient feels closer to the gift giver, but almost always the gift giver feels closer to the recipient because they have spent so much time saving or sacrificing or shopping. It's this amazing story, Rabbi Nachman of Braslov. Rabbi Nachman was one of the early Hasidic rabbis, early Hasidic rabbis. Um, he lived in, um, in what is now modern-day Ukraine, and he was the last of, his, of the rabbis in his tradition, and he had this beautiful chair this beautiful, ornate chair that you can go and see in Jerusalem. And actually, when the Nazis were coming, his descendants, he was the last of, in his line, so he died. They called him the dead Hasidim, even though they're very much alive, because their last rebbe, their last um, chief rabbi died. But they, that group of Hasid, uh, Hasidim, of this sect, stayed alive. So he had this beautiful, ornate chair. And when the Nazis were coming, what they did is they cut up the chair. Think about this. That was all they had left. There were no other rabbis. There were no other descendants. All they had left was the chair that their rabbi used to sit on. And they cut it up into pieces. And different people smuggled the pieces out. And all the pieces got smuggled to Jerusalem. And that chair has been reconstructed in Jerusalem which is amazing. And it's this beautiful woodworking chair. And it was just a poor craftsman who made it, but he was an artisan. And he brings it to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe is just so flabbergasted. And he says, all of these hours that you were making this chair, that whole time you were thinking of me. And so when we think about a sacrificial system, a real sacrificial system, all that time, everyone involved in it, and think about all the characters who you've learned about, and all the Israelites, the, the person who grew the wheat to make the, you know, to make the flour, the person who made the oil to make the cake, you know, the person who raised the goat, the person who sharpened the knife, all the people who were involved, every one of them was thinking about you know, bringing themselves closer to God and God closer to the people. So now we have to find a way to reconstruct this. So we're going to jump to um, this longer text. And this is from Megillah. Megillah, this is from a tractate in the Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud was written in the 5th century of the Common Era. Okay, so it's written in Babylonia, which is modern-day Iraq. And it is a continuation of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the first set of rabbinic law that was written uh, in the first century following the destruction of the temple. And the, the Talmud is a, uh, is a, uh, an expansion on that. I'm going to read this because we've got a lot of challenging rabbinic names. And so for your sake and theirs, I will, I will read it. <coughs> It is taught in a Abraita. Abraita is another rabbinic text from the first or second century. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who's one of those rabbis of that centuries and the author of the, of the mystical book, the Zohar, 
says, come and see how beloved the Jewish people are before the Holy One, blessed be he. As every place they were exiled, the divine presence went with them. Because remember, we already learned from the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, the divine presence isn't limited to, um, isn't limited to the land of Israel. It goes with the Jewish people wherever they go. And um, this is one of the radical, radical revolutions of the monotheism of, um, the, that Judaism brought. It's the belief in a, not just one God. It's not one God versus many gods. It's that there is only one God for every locality. Going back to the question about do we have these little local priests. In the ancient Near East, there would be a God of Olathe. You know, there would be a god of Overland Park, there would be a god of Leewood, a god of Lenexa, and all these gods would fight each other and say, no, 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 wait a second. I know everybody wants their own little god, and yeah, I know, Shawnee Mission, you guys want your own little god, you know, you know, and Miriam, look, you get a little tiny god snuck in there in between the different municipalities, you know. No! The revolution of monotheism of the Torah is saying there is only one God, and this God revealed God's self to Abraham before he went to Israel, saying, go forth. He revealed himself again to Abraham in the land of Israel, revealed himself again to the Israelites once they went down to Egypt, said, I'm going to travel with you out of Egypt into the Sinai wilderness, and I'm going to travel back with you on the circuitous route back to the land of Israel once you cross the Jordan. So God is saying, I'm not limited by geography, guys. Okay? And, um, and so that's where we get this. He says, as it is stated, did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt? They were exiled to Babylonia, and the divine presence went with them, as it is stated in the book of Isaiah. For your sake I was sent... I have sent to Babylonia. So too, when in the future they will be redeemed, and when we say redeemed, that means coming out of exile, coming back to the land of Israel. As it is stated, then the Lord your God will return with your captivity. It does not state he will bring back. In other words, it's not saying God's going to bring you back. No, God's going to come with you. God was with you that whole time. But rather... He will return, which teaches that the Holy One, blessed be He, will return together with them from the various exiles. The Gemara asks, where in Babylonia does the divine presence reside? Now, wait, they're saying, wait a second. You're saying that God was in Babylonia? But wait, God said build a tabernacle. And God said build a tabernacle, and that's how I'm going to be able to dwell in the Jewish people. And Abaye said, Oh, God dwelled in the ancient synagogue of Huzal and in the synagogue that was destroyed and rebuilt, rebuilt in Nehardea. And do not say the divine presence resided here and there. Rather, at times it resided here in Huzal and at times it resided in Nehardea. Then Abaye said, I have a blessing coming to me for whenever I am a distance of a parsang, that's a unit of measurement, from one of those synagogues, I go in and pray there due to the special honor and sanctity attached to them. He's saying that these specific synagogues were so, so special and so sacred that the divine presence recognized there. It was related that the father of Shmuel and Levi, these were two rabbis of later sages, were once sitting in the synagogue that was destroyed and rebuilt in Hardea. The divine presence came and they heard a loud sound and so they arose and left. It was further related that Rav Sheshet 
was one sitting in the synagogue that was destroyed and rebuilt in Hardea, and the divine presence came, but he did not go out. The ministering angels came and were frightening him in order to force him to leave. Rav Shesha turned to God and said before him, Master of the universe, if one is wretched and the other is not wretched, who should defer to whom? Shouldn't the one, he's assuming, he's saying this, shouldn't the one who is not wretched give way to the one who is? Now I am blind and wretched. Why then do you expect me to defer to the angels? God then turned to the angels and said to them, leave him. In other words, let him be, let him stay there. As it says in Ezekiel, yet I have been to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they have come. And this is the key verse. This verse from Ezekiel. It says, God says, I've been to them a mikdash me'at. Mikdash is the word for sanctuary from the book of Exodus. Me'at means little. So Ezekiel says, and Rabbi Yitzchak said, this is referring to the synagogues and the study halls in Babylonia. Rabbi Eleazar said, this is referring to the house of our master, i.e. Rav in Babylonia. You can see that they can't decide which synagogue it is and which study hall it is. Why do you think they, why do you think the Talmud records this as a disagreement where there's not unanimity about which synagogue and which study hall it is that God resides? What's the message that's being taught by recording this, these discordant views? What's the meta-message? Sorry, say that again. Both or either. What has to happen there for God to reside there? Yeah, the people have to be praying. They have to be a house of prayer or a house of sacred study. And when those synagogues and study halls are places of prayer and places of sacred study, God is residing there. In other words, all that stuff that you read about in Exodus, all that stuff you read about in Leviticus, and all of those things, the whole purpose of it was to get God to reside with the people of Israel. And what this rabbinic text is saying is, don't lose hope. That meta value of connecting and having communion with God can happen even if you don't have a tabernacle. Even if you don't have a temple, it is about prayer and study, and when those things are happening, you literally are communing with God and you're bringing God for God's divine presence to rest amongst you just like God did in the wilderness, irrespective of location, irrespective of physical structure. Let's go to the next one. And um, who wants to take a stab at this? This rabbi's name is Yochanan. That's the tough one, is Yochanan. Who wants to give a stab at this, uh, at this next text, Menachem?